This message comes to you from City Bible Church in Portland, Oregon, where we are committed to living like Jesus and sharing His love. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. I want to um, go right to the Bible today. If you would take your Bible, uh, we're going to jump right into the Word and try to finish the last message in this particular series. Uh, next week, we start with Easter, a new series called Alive, and that will go for, oh, eight or ten weeks out of the book of Ephesians. Um, so I didn't get to finish every one of the um, biblical messages that I wanted to do out of this particular series because some of them I doubled up on. Uh, I apologize for that. Maybe we can come back and pick up these last two some other time. I really would like to because I think they're so important. Let's look at my definition, what matters most. We're simply talking about a question that everybody should be able to answer. What matters most is finding and choosing biblical proven values. So really the series has been about values and the values that I'm talking about that you can build your life upon and have purpose, significance, and legacy. As I keep saying over and over again, almost every uh, message that I've given to you is that uh, we're talking about biblical values, not just any kind of values, but biblical values. Uh, we're talking about values that should never change, values that you should be able to easily articulate and build your life upon. Values, this is what we mean by critically important biblical core beliefs that drive our life and remain consistent in any circumstance. I've said it before. If you want to know where you don't have values, where are you the most inconsistent? Wherever you're the most inconsistent, wherever you are uh, simply ruled by emotion or circumstance or trends or friends or you know, the spirit of the moment, whatever you want to call it, is where you don't have a value. You're moved by what someone might say at that moment, so you do it. Or the circumstance has a certain pressure, so you give in to it. Values is what makes you consistent. That's why you can build on them. That's why you can have a whole life that won't be shaken by storms or people or trends or uh, lies of culture or the pressures of culture because you have already chosen to believe certain things. You've chosen a belief system. You've chosen how you will actually respond or react to something before it ever comes into your life. That's what values are all about. You've already set your course, so it can't move you off your course, no matter what happens to you in the course of living. The seven governing values we've talked about are scripture, transformation. Um, we've talked about the God of scripture, uh, the gospel was last week. I will not be able to do mission and church. And so I'm doing number seven, biblical relationship, because all of us will touch that every day of our life. So I, I thought I better at least cover that last one, the biblical relationship. That's where we're at today. All right. Sufficiency of scripture. Just let me say this as we start with the whole biblical relationship idea, because I'm going to say some things today that will be, uh, I don't know how they'll be, but I think they're true and I think they're biblical, and I will say them as I say them. Uh, and it will touch every person differently in your relationships that you have. Whether you're single or married, this message will touch you in your relationship. Maybe uh, you're struggling in some areas of parenting or marriage or single relationship or dating or whatever it might be. I think I have some things to say to you today that will help you define relationships better in your life. So I, I want to make sure you understand that we start with this sufficient of scripture idea. And this is my idea. We have 
Again, um, I say it, a deep respect for the Bible. It's not really what Frank DiMazio thinks. It's really trying to understand what the Bible thinks. And of course, the Bible can be interpreted many different ways, but really a lot of the Bible interprets itself and is very simple. It is not rocket science. It is not uh, some kind of really deep uh, theological hermeneutics that you have to build upon in order to get into the linguistics of the Hebrew and the Greek and to try to get the context on the culture and interpret the scripture and do an exegesis. I've just given you what seminary teaches you. And so those are the things that the seminary would say in order for you to interpret this, which I've done. I've done my master's, done my doctorate, and I can do all that stuff, and I do that stuff sometime, but I don't give you all the research that I do. I give you the result of it. I understand hermeneutics, understand linguistics, understand culture and context, understand exegesis, understand how you come to truth with the scripture and its work. It's, it's spade work. It's plowing. It's, it's really a discipline to get into the Bible and interpret it. Most of the Bible interprets itself. Most of the Bible is pretty clear and pretty plain. You don't have to have a lot of exegesis to understand the book of Proverbs. It's simply tells you how to live in a very practical, easy way. The Beatitudes, you don't have to have a degree in, in the hermeneutics to understand the Beatitudes or even the parables of Jesus. So what I'm saying is the Bible has sufficiency and the sufficiency of the Bible is to guide you. And this is where I want you to, to think with me and, and hopefully uh, just say it again in your spirit and get it into your heart. The Bible speaks to every area of living. There's nothing the Bible leaves unsaid. Every area of life, the Bible has authority in. It's authoritative. It has, it has a guide, a guidebook. It has principles. It has application, implementation. The Bible itself speaks to every area of life. If you want to know how to live, the Bible will tell you how to live in every area of your life. Now, you might not like what the Bible says about every area of your life, and that's why people just simply avoid what the Bible says about money, or about relationships, or about marriage, or about divorce, or about homosexuality, or about, I mean, there's a number of subjects in our culture now that are taboo. You don't talk about them. You don't touch them. You don't, you don't judge people. You don't try to drop anything on anybody. You don't interpret it. You just kind of let it go. But the Bible is the Bible, and the Bible speaks to things, and it says things that people don't like. It says things I don't like. It says things how you should forgive. And, you know, we're like the apostles. How many times should I forgive? You know, seven times in one day. Jesus says 70 times in one day would be more like it. Well, how can I forgive 70 times? In other words, you forgive all the time, every time. If that person offends you, you let them go. You do not keep them prisoner. And so the Bible talks about how you treat people, how you live life, how you think about the world, how you think about everything, what you do with your emotions, etc. It has authority. All right, we're talking about... Biblical relationships. Here's my definition of uh, what I'm trying to get across, all right? Biblical relationships are defined by Scripture. What do you mean by that? You'll see, at least from my standpoint. They're defined by Scripture as having purpose. As having purpose and principles. Set principles on relationships. Boundaries. There's boundaries to relationships. And blessings, lots of them, to relationships. But you can't have the blessings without the boundaries. And you can't build the boundaries without principles. And you can't build the principles 
if you don't even understand the purpose of, of relationships. And so the package kind of goes together. You have to understand God has a purpose in every relationship. God has a purpose. And in that purpose, there are principles that you walk in. There's principles that you obey. There's principles that you understand. And as you do that, there are some boundaries. There's some things you can't do in a relationship. There's things that God says, I put a fence there, don't cross it. Well, I don't think I, I like the fence and I don't think the fence is needed. And God says, well, there's consequences for you removing the boundaries and there's consequences to moving the fence. And if you want to try it, you can go ahead and try it. God's not going to kill you. He's not going to send an angel and, and slap you on the top of the head every time you move the fence post. But there are things in life called consequences. And some people don't have consequences for a long time. And so they think they get away with it. They think there are no consequences. But in the eternal realm of God and the way God deals with us, there is a cause and effect and there is a blessing and there are consequences that happens with every decision you make and it affects you as an individual. All right, we're talking about relationships, personal relationships. I'm going to deal, and I'm, I'm hoping I get to it. You know, I have a fear I tell you what I'm going to do and I won't be able to do it, but uh, I see four as the cornerstones, four different relationships that you should have in your life and you will have. In due season, whether you're there or not, uh, at this point or not, it doesn't matter. You will have to deal with these four aspects of relationship in your life. The first one is our relationship to God, our relationship to Jesus, our relationship to the spiritual realm. Your relationship to God, whether you understand it or not, actually defines you and defines the way you will act in every other relationship in your life. When Jesus is asked about relationship, he simply says, it's very, very simple. Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. The two is really the only hinges to the door of life that you have. You have to love God and learn to love God. And then you love people. And those people relationships are on lots of different levels. But that's it right there. Jesus says, you want to have a full life? Yeah. Then you must learn how to love God. And when you learn how to love God, it shapes you into the kind of person that will love people better, will love people differently than a person who doesn't know God or a person who doesn't have the image of God stamped into their character, you will love differently. So the very first relationship that you should have is a relationship to Jesus. Your relationship to Jesus, whether you want to see it this way or not, will have a great relationship uh, consequence in your marriage. Your relationship to Jesus, if it's good, your marriage is better. If it's bad, your marriage might go on the rocks for certain reasons that you could control if you were a better Christian or if you love God more with all your heart. A lot of things she would do or he would do would not affect you because you are totally stamped with the character of Jesus, which means you have gentleness and forgiveness and you have tolerance and you have endurance and you have the nature of God and you have joy and you have all these things that the Bible talks about that comes with the relationship with God. And because of that, how you relate to everyone else in your life will be shaped around how you're shaping your relationship 
to God. And so my question, of course, is Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice. And so Revelation 3.20, I'm simply saying to you, uh, have you opened the door? Have you heard the voice? Have you let Jesus in? Revelation 3 and verse 20. He says, I knock on the door. The Greek there is I knock and I keep knocking. It's a continual. It never ends. Jesus is always seeking your life. But you are the only person who can open the door. You're the only person that can answer the knock. You're the only person that can respond to Jesus when he comes knocking at your door. And then he says, if you hear my voice, I will come in and I will dine with you, fellowship with you, make a habitation with you, a house with you, a life with you. I will come into your life. Now, again, you must know if you ever open that door or not. You must know that right now or soon or sometime in your life. Hopefully you will come to grips with this. Did you open the door to Jesus? Did you invite him into your life? Have you made him the center dining room of your life? Do you have, what is the most important thing I'm going to talk about here, do you have a relationship to Jesus? Not a relationship to the church, not a relationship to a hymnal or a book or a song or uh, even sermons or a relationship to having coffee with Christians. There's all kinds of reasons why church is good. But the, the real reason that church exists is because Jesus lives in the church. And Jesus is the center. He's the core. He's the reason. He, he's everything. And, and you have to know him. You have to love him. You have to have a relationship to Jesus that is real. A real relationship is a two-way thing. It's, it's a relationship that affects your heart. A.W. Tozer, if you don't read him, you should. He's, he's dead and in heaven now, but he's written many books. He calls people who have a relationship to Jesus, people of the burning heart. I love his phrase, people of the burning heart. Is your heart on fire with something? Does your heart have feeling about Jesus? Does your heart have enough emotion that you could call it passion? Do you have passion when it comes to Jesus? When you pray, does something inside of you move? Why? Because it's alive. When, when a woman is pregnant with her child, one of the great things that happens in that woman's life is when the child moves in your body. And it's a scary thing when the child doesn't move in your body because you don't know where life exists or not, what's going on here. But as long as that child is moving and kicking and responding, and, and it's a joyful thing. I've been through it several times with my wife and now with my, my uh, uh, son's wife and, and going through pregnancy and talking with her. It just You live it again as a granddad. But the point is this. There has to be something in you in order for it to move. So if Jesus is in you and there's a relationship and there's a passion and there's a burning heart, something in you moves with Jesus. It, it has a rhythm of life. It has a passion of life. It, it is real to you. you. You might sound funny to people when you talk about Jesus because he's so real to you. The way you talk with him, people notice that and say, man, you have a, a relationship to Jesus that is, that is really, really different. One of the old, uh, old writers, uh, one of the old saints said this, we trust thee, O living bread, and long to feast upon you. We drink of you, the fountainhead, and we thirst with our soul to be filled. 
what kind of language would a person use like this? Thirst and hunger and fill and it's relationship. It's when you find Jesus. Again, I know what it's like to have a religious relationship to Jesus and a living relationship to Jesus. Because for 17 years, till I was 17, I only had a religious one. Nothing moved in me. Nothing moved around me. Nothing was passionate in me about Jesus. I never heard the voice of Jesus, never talked to Jesus, never had a love for Jesus, never stood up for Jesus, never shared Jesus. Why? Because I didn't have Jesus. I was vacant. I never opened the door myself to let Jesus in and then make it a passionate relationship to Jesus. That passionate relationship, Jeremiah 31, verse 3, the Lord has appeared of old to me saying, yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I draw you. Acts 17, 27, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him. And then it uses this phrase. It's actually a, a Acts 17, 27 is a quote from one of the, the philosophers and of that day that he actually quotes in the scripture where he says, though he is not far from each one of us, we live and we move and we have him inside of us. He's not far from any one of us. That was actually a quote from one of the, the, the local philosophers of that day, that he's not very far. He's not very far from you, Acts 17, 27. He's not far from anybody. He's never far from anyone. If you reach, you'll find. If you open the door, he'll come in. If you try to talk with him, he'll talk with you. He'll answer your prayer. He'll begin to do things in you that means you'll have passion. Our relationship to Jesus is what? It should be real and personal. Meaning, it should be spiritual. It should be intimate. It should be a relationship where deep and strong emotions are shared and felt. Now again, I'm trying to describe something that's very subjective, but I would think that if you could put it into the human love context, when you, when you love somebody and you first start dating them and then you finally get engaged and you finally get married, when you love somebody, there is emotion. There, there is passion. There's feeling. There's life. There's expectation. There's joy. There's fulfillment. There's, there's a relationship, and it should grow. My wife and I will be married 40 years next year. We, we, we are going into uh, years. We've been doing this for years. And love only gets better when it starts right. It only gets better. You, you don't have uh, a lesser love as you get older. You have more love, mature love, a deeper love, a, a passionate, affectionate love for one another and life itself. Why? It's a relationship. If you have a relationship to Jesus, it grows. It changes, it matures, it has feelings, it has reflection, it has relationship. It's, it's what forms your life. It's what will form your, your mind, your will, your emotions, and, and how you used to be an angry person. But the more you get to know Jesus, you let anger go. If you used to be resentful, you... you no Jesus, you let resentment go. If you used to be bitter, you let bitterness go. If you used to be a person that would hold grudges, you let grudges go. Why? Because the more you relate to Jesus, the more you become like Jesus. And the more you become like Jesus, you're a better husband. You're a better wife. 
You're a better friend. You're a better person. You're a better worker. You're a better everything if you're becoming more like Jesus. You can't do that unless there's a love relationship. Can I hear an amen? amen. So I'm praying that you would find a passionate relationship with Jesus. That's what I'm praying. I'm praying that you will land somewhere in your heart to say, maybe I should develop this more. Maybe, maybe I'm going about this not really very deeply. Maybe, maybe I'm too religious and I never really unfolded my heart before God and really learned the heart of God and put my life into the hands of God. It's, it's, all of that is relationship with Jesus. All right, Psalm 42 and verse one says, my soul thirsts for you, O God, the living God. Well, what kind of language is this that a person would say, I thirst for God. I just, I long for him like a deer pants for the water brooks. I pant for God. I mean, would that be something you've ever done in your life is, is, is run after God and pant for God like a deer after the water? You just can't wait to get that drink. Have you ever been in a situation where you can't wait to get into your prayer time because you know the relationship you have to Jesus is so real and so enjoyable? You can't wait to have devotions, not because somebody said you should have devotions, but because you love the Word, you love the Spirit, you love Jesus. There's something real going on. He's talking with you. It's a joyful thing. It feeds your spirit. He quickens the word to you. You share it with other people. It's called relationship. And that is the kind of relationship Jesus wants with you. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's how we are supposed to love God. All right? Now, if you have a good relationship to Jesus. And if you don't, you can approve it. You can change it. That's the great thing about Christianity. You start right now and, uh, and you make it happen. You, you go deeper, you go harder, you, 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 you go after Jesus with more of your heart, etc. Now, let me talk about the second relationship in your life. There could be many, but I'm going to go to this one. I'm only going to talk about four, but here's the second one. A relationship to someone you love before you're married. So this will apply to everybody, to some people much more specifically, obviously, but I think I need to say it. How do you relate to someone you love or you think you love before you're married? Well, our whole nation has a thing called dating. A thing called dating. Dating today leaves a lot of broken hearts and broken people. In my estimation, there's something wrong with the way the American society dates. Now, am I going to say you shouldn't at all? I'm not. I'm not going to go there and be some kind of a nerd and prude and weird and some kind of a reverend that says, you know, bless God, you just get the word of the Lord, marry one woman, and you don't kiss her until you go down the aisle, and that's it. Well, that might be a great way to go, but it's probably not going to happen. It's probably not going to happen. But what I'm going to say shouldn't happen either. Dating today leaves broken hearts, broken lives, hurts, loss of purity, sexual sins that define people. And despite young people's best intentions, our young adults' best intentions, they end up getting burned with relationships that have gone too far. All right? Now, 
modern dating. I'm going to define two things for you, modern and biblical, the best I can. I don't know if I've ever done this, not in this particular way, so you might want to get a hold of this podcast or whatever and share it with the people that need to hear it. Not everybody in this room would be the only people that need to hear this, but there are many people that could benefit from this. The first thing you have to understand with modern dating is that TV is one big fat lie. That's the first thing you got to understand. TV presents romance and relationships in the most ludicrous, unreal way that anyone could ever imagine a relationship. You jump in the bed with this one and that one, get up the next morning, have coffee together, go your way, do it again and again and again and again, and it's all smiles and happy and there's romance. And, and it's, it's almost like the young people that are watching the movies and watching TV are learning a lie about romance and a lie about sex and a lie about relationships that they can't put a line down. They, they really don't understand that what they're watching is absolutely unreal, not only to the, to the society we live in, but the people that are acting the parts have wrecked lives, wrecked relationships. The people that are acting the parts don't know anything about love or romance. And so there's, there's a lie that we are drinking into this culture that has changed the way people think about relationships. And I think TV and movies are uh, one of the greatest uh, culture shapers that we have, especially for the younger people, and it's all one big fat lie. There's not one one thousandth of what you see in those movies that is true. But you start drinking in, you start imagining, I want a guy to kiss me like that. I want a girl to look like that. I want to have a life like that. Well, that would be fantastic. And then you have the social media. And everybody can hook up anywhere they want and send pictures to one another. Well, that's going crazy too and causing us a lot of problem with a lot of families and a lot of young people because they don't understand anything about relationship. Modern dating goes like this. It's between two people that may or may not have marriage as a goal. So modern dating does not have commitment as a goal. It really has no goal except pleasure. And so modern dating starts with this idea that Relationship is purely recreational. Relationship is purely for my education. Relationship is purely a romantic experience. Now, I might have one, two, five, ten, twenty of those before I ever get married. And the sad thing is, most of our society, that's what's happening. That's what's happening. They're having one, two, five, ten relationships of some kind of recreational, uh, some kind of education, romance, some kind of a uh, self-fulfillment thing. Oops, it doesn't work. Go to the next one. And oops, that doesn't work. But, you know, I didn't think I was going to marry that guy or that girl anyway, so I go to the next one. And before you know it, you start creating an emotion in the person that is so wounded and so mixed up and so broken that they really can't come to a real relationship. And when they do, they can't keep a real relationship. Therefore, when they get married, a lot of them are forced into wrong marriages and marry the wrong person for the wrong reasons. And then they get a divorce, such as our nation. Uh, so many thousands of divorces. Why? Because the relationship thing starts wrong from the beginning. It's not going to be fixed when you get married. It's not going to fix itself because you walk down the aisle. There is still you 
that has to be connected to a person in a right way. And people just simply don't know how to do it. If we love each other, what's wrong with having sex? Even Christians do this. People in our church. What's wrong with having sex? What do you, what do you mean what's wrong with having sex? Well, if we love each other, why would we have to refrain from any physical stuff? Maybe we have physical stuff, but we don't go all the way. Well, why wouldn't you? Well, I can tell you a couple reasons. What you gain is not worth what you lose. Okay? What you gain is not worth what you lose. Now, you can choose to gain it. That is, what do you gain? A brief thrill, a momentary pleasure. We're talking minutes. We're talking a slice of seconds out of the millions of seconds you have in your life. A brief thrill, a momentary physical fulfillment, a pleasure, a very short-lived pleasure. And for those who are youth, 70% of them say their first experience with sex, being in that dating situation, was a horrible experience to begin with. They didn't enjoy it. It's not what they thought it would be. It grossed them out. It hurt them. It had, I mean, their, their response to this is it wasn't the way I thought it would be at all. And I'm telling you right now, it won't be. It won't be. What you will lose and what you think you're gaining, you put the two together. What do you lose? Well, this is what you lose. You don't know real love. You've now taken the idea of love and put it into a very selfish, undefined sexual relationship or sensual or physical of some kind or emotional. And you've traded something that could be really, really good. It could be a wonderful part of your life. But you're trading it for a cheap thing. You're trading it for a short thing. You're trading it for a temporary thing. And then you end up finding out that you can't really find real love with that person. And then that person goes their way. But there's something that they take from you when they go their way. Not waiting for God's best. What do you lose? You lose self-esteem. You lose healthy emotions. You lose trust. You end up with long-term sorrow. Is it worth it? No, it's not worth it. But our culture says it ain't no big deal. It is a very big deal. It is a very big deal. How you relate to the person before you're married is a very big deal. And it will define you for the rest of your life. It will define you. Okay? The Bible says that we are not to have that kind of relationship to the people we love before we're married. Before we're married. Biblical dating, on the other hand, this is 
even though dating, you won't find it in the Bible, but I'm just talking about relationship because it's real that you're going to court, date, or do something before you marry that person. Understood. I'm not arguing that point whatsoever. I think healthy relationships are good. Biblical dating is a method of introduction and carrying out what should be a premarital relationship between a single man and a single woman. I define it carefully because that's what I think the relationship should be and has boundaries to it. And so when you date, now there's, there's again, I could spend a lot more time on this and I knew this would happen. Um, there's acquaintances and there's relationships you can have in groups. There's all kinds of ways you can do this. But if you want to have a serious relationship, you should not have a serious relationship unless you intend it to end up in marriage. At least that's your goal. Your goal is that you're going to commit yourself in a relationship because you want to end up in a married relationship. You're not just trying on the shoes. You're not just you know, doing things just for your own pleasure. You have a goal in mind with that commitment, all right? When it comes to this kind of relationship that we have with the person before we get married, here are four very good scriptures. One, 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Depends on how you look and how you think these are good, but I think it answers a question that I get from young people far too often and from young adults and even people into their 30s that are Christian or non-Christian, I still get the same, why can't we have more physical relationship before we're married? What, what harm would it do? Well, it's not just because it's sinful. Well, you did something, it's, it's a sinful thing, you shouldn't do it. It is, but it's so much deeper than just a sinful thing. 1 Corinthians 6, now remember, this is not me telling you this. This is the Apostle Paul writing an epistle, a letter to the Corinthian church, which would be like writing a letter to the L.A., Los Angeles church or the Seattle church or Portland, a city that had a lot of singles and a city that had a lot of problems. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18 and 20, he starts with these words, flee sexual immorality. That's how he starts the verse. Flee sexual immorality. Then he says something that a lot of people would like to figure out. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his or her own body. Whoa, that's in the Bible. Every, I mean, is, is this right? that Paul is actually categorizing and he has one category for sexual sin and a category over here for every other sin. That's what he says. Every sin a man or woman does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his or her own body. How? You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. I'm going to read another scripture, then I'm going to answer the question I'm asking you. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 3. Apostle Paul, dealing with what I'm dealing with as a pastor. Exactly the stuff I'm dealing with is what Paul's writing about. I live this. 1 Thessalonians 4, 
verse 3 through 6. For this is the will of God. What is the will of God? Your sanctification. What is sanctification? You're setting apart to be different. That's what sanctification means. You're set apart to be something different. You're not to be the same as the world around you or the culture around you. He says, your sanctification. Then he says that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know, interesting phrase, famous Pauline phrase, and one that bears a lot of meditation, I think. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles who do not know God. That no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother or sister in this matter. Because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also forewarned you and testified. This verse is filled with some very amazing insights about sexual immorality. And our country is totally buying into sexual immorality as being no big deal. Not only before marriage, but after marriage and adultery and everything else. It's just, it's just a country that's gone crazy when it comes to this one expression. The pornography is off the charts in our country. And then you dig down and there's the gross stuff that goes with child pornography and all. How could, any, how could anybody in their wildest imagination abuse a child? Well, it's not how you think it is. It's because our culture has abused the whole sacredness of sexuality. And so there's a craziness that sets in that has captured the hearts of people. Sexual behavior is not just a physical act. If you don't hear anything else today, you should hear this one. It's not just a physical act. Paul says it. You and the other person become one. You become one. What does that mean? A part of you remains forever with the other person. Never erased. Forever. As long as that person lives and you live. A part of you was given away. You sin against what? Your own body and sexual, because it's covenantal, affects your spirit. Affects your spirit. And that's why more with women than men, it affects their personality, their emotional makeup. It affects how they think about love, how they think about everything about themselves. That's why some, which, which should not happen, and I don't want to leave you with this, so you just have to give me some more minutes to try to wrap this up. But I think with the young women that, that get deceived by men's lust and that men can use a lot of manipulative power to get sex out of a woman by doing all the things they would want to do that they can do to get you just to give them your body and then when they get it 
That's all they wanted. They just wanted that piece of you. They didn't want anything else. They didn't want the relationship. They didn't want the emotion. They didn't want your package. All they wanted was that piece of you, and that's why the next day they don't talk with you, or, or the next week they don't return calls, or the next month they're with another girl or another woman. All of a sudden you realize they took advantage of me. And what happens is that the woman can feel like they are soiled goods, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price kind of a damaged goods. So then what happens? They start relating maybe from that point on to other young men or men. I'm talking this can happen to teens right through young adult where because they think they are slightly damaged and they are used and now their, their price tag has changed that they actually then present themselves to other men that way. So now they've lowered their self-image and their self-worth knowing that I'm not a virgin, knowing I gave myself away, I'm, I'm baggage anyway, and so I find another guy. And then they repeat that relationship two or three times. They can get so damaged that they can't find a way to really love. And then you have that person getting married. It's going to be a tough go for them to build a relationship. Now, as a believer, as, as, a, as a man who understands life, understands this scenario right here, understands the damage, understands the scenario, the great news is that you can be cleansed and start new. That's the great news. The great news is that you can actually have Jesus make you a new spirit and a new personhood so that you are not damaged goods and you don't function with a piece of you missing. And it's like a, a person, if, if I really get strong and start preaching against abortion, there's people in our church that have had abortions. There are people in our church that are born again believers that have had abortion. Women that are great mothers right now. You can't just uh, hammer their, their wrong without saying any kind of wrong with the gospel can change to becoming a strength. God can use that to rebuild you with more boundaries, with more passion, with more love, with more forgiveness. Forgiving yourself is a big part of that. So that you don't continue with the lie that you're damaged goods and you have nothing to offer. That is a lie of the devil and that is wrong. You can have wholesome, great relationships if you let the Holy Spirit in. You can have, you can have a great life. But what I've just said, you've got to understand. If you continue relating if you've damaged yourself as a man or a woman and you relate with that damaged idea of relationship, it's only going to get you in deeper water trouble. So you have to start with saying, I'm not damaged good. I'm not a broken person. I can get healed from this. I will start all over again. Jesus will be my purity. I will have a great relationship with my husband and we will build a great family. This will be behind me. Can I hear an amen? amen. And so that has to be part of what happens. All right? Uh, geez. 
There are four relationships in life that you need to understand. <laughs> two of which we've done. Come on, Jenny. How many of you got something out of this? You got pretty quiet on me. How many of you uh, are really, really glad for the blood of Jesus that cleanses and for the, the compassion of Jesus that looks down? Second Corinthians 5.17, he'll make you a brand new person. You know, you've, you've got to get a hold of that and you've got to believe that. But in order to get a hold of it and believe it, you have to stop Hollywood mentality. Stop being culturized. Draw a line and move forward. Can I hear an amen? 